We're still studying First Peter. Eric called and asked me to, to do it again because we were kind of in the middle of all this discussion when uh, we ran out of time. So here I am back again with First Peter, and I'm going to preach this morning as well. So with enough cough drops, my voice will last for two hours. Okay, as we gather, we'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to open up the scriptures, to think about the great work of salvation you've done for us. We pray for our entire morning, service, fellowship, and so on, that we would bring the gospel in front of people, that we would honor the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would open our hearts and minds to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we are, and I'll just read the text, 1 Peter three seventeen through 22. I started this with the idea of teaching the passage about baptism, but we can't seem to get that far. If we, if we do, we will talk about baptism. It says in verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, last two weeks ago, we spent most of the time, or was it last week? When did we do verse 18? Last week. And the great thing about verse 18 It's absolutely loaded with gospel truth. And the more you understand it from the original languages and some of the cross-references, the more profound that gospel truth is. It's very powerful. I said last week, once for all, we studied that. But I got it right here, 1 Peter 3. And so once for all, if you remember that, very important gospel concept, Christ died for sins once for all which is great news because it means you don't have to do the sacrifices over and over and over again. That's emphasized in the book of Hebrews. Then we looked at righteous for the unrighteous, substitutionary atonement. Then we looked at to bring you to God, and that's a technical term in the Greek that's used in the Old Testament for uh, Aaron and sons to be made purified so they can be brought before God. The idea is that we can... All as pre, a holy priesthood, that's from 1 Peter chapter 2, we can come before God as priests. Every believer is a priest to God, which is a great idea. And then where we start getting into interpretive questions, he was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Now, the NIV makes an interpretive decision for us here. I think the NIV is correct, but it is translated different ways because there's two datives in the question. And I think I covered that last week. The the question would be uh, how you interpret those two datives. Then here's where we get into the, how would you say it, very difficult passage. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, I'm going to look back at verse 18 and forward to 20, and then we'll come back to this one, because this is the one we were on last week. And as you saw, there's different ideas about what this means. And I'm in understanding 
through whom to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you back up one, made alive by the Spirit, through whom? So I would say whom is the Holy Spirit. That's how I'm interpreting it. And I think I've got good grammatical reason to do so. And then, he went and preached. Now, the, there are several questions here. One of them is, who's he who went and preached? We believe that that's, I believe in hell, that that's Christ. Christ is the one who travels, the Greek says travels, and preaches. Another question, this is what I said last week, you don't have to agree with me, that this is talking about what happens after the resurrection. Okay? Made alive, I, the, in blue there, I claim means resurrection. It's used that way elsewhere in the New Testament. Through whom? Through the Spirit, he traveled and preached. And here, there's where all the questions really start piling up. To whom did he preach? Well, it says spirits in prison or the spirits, angels, demons, human beings. Uh, what's the, uh, who are these spirits? And then what about the prison? What kind of a prison are we talking about? And how can a spirit be in prison? So you can see there's reasons why this is a difficult passage. Now, let's just bounce ahead for a second here. And I have a bunch of material for us. 1 Peter 3.20. I went to the Net Bible because it has a really good translation in a couple places I thought were important. After they, now let's who's they? That's our first interpretive issue in 20. I'm saying it's the spirits. All right? They were disobedient. Okay, so we have spirits who were disobedient. When were they disobedient? Long ago. And is this tied to anything in particular? Well, it says when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. So somehow or another, I stepped on my own cord. Somehow or another, um, the Noahic flood and the building of the ark, which is going to be referenced in regard to baptism and what all happened in Genesis 6 serves as a background of this. That's how I read it. That's how I understand it. And it says God waited patiently. Now, Noah took a long time to build the ark. Okay, and it wasn't raining or flooding. They got a dew every morning. And so you imagine his contemporaries thought he was a crazy guy. What are you building a boat for? It'd be like building a boat now in California. They're having a drought. There's no water even in the things that used to be reservoirs. But he was building an ark. And this is where we're going to inform baptism. In the ark, a few, that, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. And that becomes uh, an anti-tupos, it says in the Greek, for baptism or antitype. Let me see what I've got here on my slides. Okay, and then we touched this last week, but I want to do it again. By the way, this is a discussion. Brian has the mic. Anybody wants to discuss, feel free to do so. We looked at Jude, and today I also want to look at 2 Peter 2, because both serve as a background to 1 Peter 3. All right? So Jude 1, 6 and 7. We did this last week, but let's look at it again. And then I brought some show and tell. All right? Now, it says here, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he, that is God, has kept in eternal bonds. So, stop right there, kept in eternal bonds, I would say, now you don't have to agree with me, the way I see this is the spirits in prison are the same as the angels in eternal bonds. That's how I'm reading that. 
Yeah, and I think when we see that you get the same idea in Second Peter 2, that that's how Peter understood it. Kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So let me give you an implication of that. If this is true, unless we're just going way off the rails here, that means that some of the fallen angels whose sin is linked to the narrative about Noah were locked up by God. Not meaning they've already come under the eternal judgment and been thrown into the lake of fire. It means they're locked up. And I'll tell you in a, in a bit why and what that implies and a good reason for this. And I believe now that there's no tense, as I'm going to go back and forth here, it says they were disobedient long ago when Noah, when God waited patiently. Okay, and it says here they're in prison. Now, I would believe that that's who he's talking about, these fallen angels, because they are linked to Noah. Somehow this has to go back to Noah, if we're going to take context seriously. Now, uh, reserve for judgment. Now, the judgment on these particular fallen angels hasn't already happened. It says that Jesus traveled and preached, I'm saying, to these fallen spirits, declaring victory over wicked darkness and vindicating righteous Noah. Okay? And then it goes on to another narrative from the Old Testament in Genesis, from Genesis 19. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, as these, who are these, going back to the spirits in prison, indulged in gross immorality. Now, that's what Genesis 6 says these angels did. And went after strange flesh. Now, we know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in Genesis 19. And notice what it says, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the fire that burned up Sodom and Gomorrah is an example. It isn't eternal fire. It's an example of it. Okay? And it says in Peter that it warns anybody that wants to do that. Now, what was at issue in Genesis 6 and Genesis 19 that would be the same issue? And I would say boundary crossing. You know, and you might say, well, I mean, that's some pretty serious boundary crossing. You might say, well, what are the similarities? For one thing, there were angels involved both times. Now, in the not narrative, the angels are good, and they're, they're not indicted. They're not doing evil. But the sinners, the men, wanted the angels. And even after they were smitten blind... Their wickedness was so great, they wouldn't quit groping for the door. How wicked is that? They were groping for the door, hoping to get in because of the angels. Now, in both cases, we have severe boundary crossing. What do we learn from this, or why would it even be this way? Why would the Lord tell us these things? Let me suggest a couple of reasons. And I'm assuming you're familiar with Genesis 6. Reason number one, God's attitude toward boundary crossing has never changed. And it tells us here that these things are examples for us. And so when you look across what's going on, let's say in our country today, boundary crossing is celebrated. Oh, yeah, let's throw off the boundaries of God and do whatever we want to do. Now, some people say, well, then why doesn't fire fall out of heaven? Because we've already had our example. This is an example for eternal judgment, not the eternal judgment. And so people today think, well, I'm getting by with it. I'm doing whatever I want to do. They don't believe the Bible, that there really is eternal judgment, and it really will come. 
And so God's attitude toward boundary crossing in an immoral way isn't any different than it was when these exemplary judgments happened. What's an exemplary judgment? It's a judgment that reveals to us God's attitude toward something. And his attitude doesn't change. So, let me see what else I have. Let's go to 2 Peter 2 now, 4 through 6. And then I'm going to try to put this all together. There's a way in which Jude and 2 Peter 2 are parallel very similarly to our synoptic gospels. Okay? It's not to be doubted that they're, they're dealing with some of the same material. Wherever it may have come from, Jude and 2 Peter 2 are very, very similar. Some of the same terminology is used. Let me read this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, notice what it says, reserved for judgment. Same thing as we had in Jude. Same thing Peter's talking about. So the spirits in prison, in my understanding of this, I can't make, I'm not trying to make somebody agree with me. If it doesn't make sense to you, then so be it. But it's the same group. It's spirits in prison awaiting judgment, but they're locked up so they can't do the same deeds right now. This would be God showing mercy to the human race. That was the second reason, by the way. The first reason was exemplary judgment. The second reason for this was to preserve the seed promise. The situation in Genesis 6 was so dire and so wicked that it threatened the viability of the seed promise that was given to Eve through thy seed, so on. You know, you have the crushing of the serpent's head. And there were only eight. There were only eight. Can you think of that? The wickedness across humankind was so great, there were only eight righteous. And if I'm right, and I'm taking Genesis 6 literally, there was boundary crossing. This would destroy the seed of the woman. Okay? So God preserved Noah and the other seven, his wife and his kids and their wives, through the flood to wipe all this out. And now you have through Noah the preservation of the seed promise. God keeps his word. So it says he's preserved, okay? These are reserved. The fallen angels are reserved for judgment. Noah is preserved for future generations that the righteousness of God might be revealed through the coming of Messiah. He preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Now, the Bible doesn't recount in Genesis the content of Noah's preaching, but it says here that he was preaching. But he may be at been, I mean, even through his action, he was announcing the judgment of God. Judgment is coming. They wouldn't listen to him. And this is, by the way, given to encourage the flock that are suffering in Peter's day. Preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And now there's a real long if-then. I mean, this goes a long ways. I'm only giving you part of it. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, notice what it says, having made them an example. It's the same terminology used in Jude. Having made them an example to those who who would live ungodly, the ungodly were the ones drowned in the water, is an example of those who would thereafter. What's going on here? Let me give you a bigger picture. These fallen angels 
that acted wickedly in Genesis 6 that provoked the flood that's recounted in Genesis 6 are locked up in prison reserved for judgment. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God preserved the seed promise and his own justice by preserving Noah and his family. And so you have the locked up and the ones who are warned, those who would live ungodly thereafter. Now, the ungodly thereafter would be anybody in throughout history might be thinking this. I'm not locked up. Nobody's doing anything to me. God can't be unhappy with me. I think I'll start a church dedicated to my own sin. That's, that's how bad it is. God didn't say he was going to lock up everybody. He locked up those certain angels. Does that make sense? And so you have an example so that we know better. So nobody can see on the day of judgment, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know God was angry with this. I didn't know this was boundary crossing. I didn't know this was against God's will. Nobody can ever say that. The angels are locked. The humans are warned. And the seed promise is preserved. That's how I read this. I think what it says is powerful. Okay, I think it's very powerful. Yes, okay, now let's have some discussion. What is what is boundary crossing? Is it is it homosexuality or is it angels having yeah, it sexual angels relationships with, with human with, beings? It was the angels with women and men with men. And the men with men were also interested in angels. They just weren't allowed to have their way. Yes, Ralph. Um, not disagreeing with what you're saying here, but just um, there's a whole idea of Satan. Where did he come from? They usually go, what I've heard, they, you go to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. You have Lucifer, he fell. Yeah. And then there's a, uh, in Revelation, I don't remember the exact verse, where Satan took a third, took a third of the angels. Yes. So these are the fallen angels. Now, what you're talking about is a different class then, apparently. Yes, you got exactly right, Ralph. You, uh, there are two uh, groups of Demons, wicked spirits, fallen angels. Those who have been locked up since the time of Noah and those that are still loose who hadn't participated in that same sin. They're still loose. They're still doing their uh, dirty, lying deeds. But they're not the ones from the time of Noah. They're, they're under key, lock and key, awaiting judgment. Uh, Eric. Yeah, Bob, I think you made good a good point, point. by the way, Ralph. Thank you. Yeah, back to that uh, boundary crossing, too. Second Peter, with this boundary crossing, the issue with Peter is you have these false teachers who are saying Jesus Christ is not returning. Therefore, we can live any way we want. Therefore, we can take somebody else's wife. And you remember in Second Peter 1, that's why the big debate over the interpretation of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration is such an issue. That's why Peter has to argue you're not allowed your own interpretation of scripture god ordained or authenticated the correct interpretation yeah because they heard the voice this is my son from psalm 2 and listen they to him. listen to him exactly and you know what bob you made a great point here second peter 2 we have this judgment that happens and like you said it's an exemplary judgment and it only has to happen once peter uses it again in second peter 3 he says there are those who say yeah. you know god must be slow concerning his promise and he says no after all he reserved he, he created all things. God intervened in history when he made everything in the initial creation, but he also is going to intervene, or he did, with the flood. So the flood and the judgment upon these angels is always used as an exemplary judgment. So he yeah. uses it over Jude and over. says that. Peter says yep. that. It's obvious from the Bible, and it comes up in the Gospels. Okay? Yeah. And um, exemplary judgment doesn't exhaust God's judgment it informs us about the future judgment that we need to take heed. And as Eric said, you go into Second Peter 3, and you have mockers who mock because everything's the same. Okay? I understand. Genesis 6 
is very disgusting and distasteful. But it's so much so, that's why God locked up the participants. And furthermore, I think Genesis 19 is disgusting and distasteful. Okay? And people today don't see it that way, but I do. And it's an example. God burned up Sodom and Gomorrah as an example thereafter. That's what it says. Yes. Clarification. Um, the, The... Angels had relations with daughters of men after the, the daughters flood, daughters of men. After the flood, right? What? After the flood? No, before. No? Genesis 6, 1 through 4, before oh. the flood. In fact, so how do the you have the, the giants the then? What? How do you have the giants then? Well, that's not all that clear in Genesis. They show up again, which you wouldn't want. And it's, it doesn't totally go away until the time of David. I'm telling you, I can tell you what I think, and I've already preached all the way through Genesis, or at least starting in chapter 3. I think that that's what was going on in Canaan. How, I can't tell you, but it was. And that's why God wanted Israel to wipe out the Canaanites. They had giants, and they, they were somehow, something like this going on. Yes, Ralph. Okay, so it would be different humans, so then God is condemning interracial marriage? Yeah. I understand that, but there's, there's no, I see no evidence whatsoever from the text that, that says that. Okay, go, Eric, did you have something to say about that? That's, that idea has been around. It's interesting, I did some more research here. All of the Jewish interpreters in the intertestamental time and at the time of Christ interpreted Genesis 6 literally. There was none of this line of Seth theory. Plus, they're transgressing a boundary. It's not even clear it's a boundary in the Bible. Go ahead. The problem with that, Ralph, is the sons of God, every time that's used, and I mean every time it's used in the Old Testament, Look in Job 1, the sons of God is always a reference to the spirits, always a reference to the angelic beings. The other thing Bob has already pointed out, in fact, he had the Jude 1 up there just a moment ago. Jude 1, 6 through 7, really gives us a divine interpretation of Genesis 6. It calls them angels. Exactly, because it says the angels went after strange flesh. It says in the same way Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh. And so in the same way makes a link between Sodom and Gomorrah and the antecedent is the angels. So now you have a divine interpretation of the Genesis 6 event. Also, turn your Bibles, if you will, to, um, because Bob made a great point. Why did God want the Canaanites wiped out? Well, because they're now going to distort the seed promise. And what's very interesting is in Genesis 9, remember you have the judgment that's placed upon, it should be placed upon Ham. Remember, Ham discloses the nakedness of Noah. Well, what's very interesting, Ham does that, but notice who the curse is upon. It's on Canaan, exactly. So here's the curse. Now remember, Ham, one of the sons of Noah, shows the nakedness of his father, but the judgment comes upon Canaan. And and we're in 925. It says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, remember, you would think, well, it should be Ham. Cursed be Ham. He's the one who did it. Canaan is a descendant. He's a son of Ham. Okay? Well, then it goes on to say, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let not Ham, but Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan here is being judged for what Ham did. Now, here's the issue. Cana and the Canaanites end up acting in the same sexually immoral way, just as Genesis 6 Boundary crossing, yep. Ham does it, the yep. Canaanites do it. Now, what's very interesting, fast forward just real quick to Genesis 12. It's almost right out of the blue. Here you're giving the promise to Abram. Notice in Genesis 12, well, let's start in 12.4. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Well, I'm sorry, skip down to 5. It says, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, and they, get, they were, had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, 
and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. So now what's being expressed is there's a problem. These Canaanites are there, and they need to be expelled. Why? Because they're a curse. And exactly what Bob was saying is they need to be expelled. They're the ones who are engaged in sexual immorality. And that's why all the way through the Pentateuch, God is saying don't do as the Canaanites do. These are the people that are cursed and doing wicked and things. There was a reason why God wasn't just being overly harsh. Exactly. Yep. The destruction of Canaan was to accomplish the same thing as the flood, which is to preserve the seed of the woman, the Messianic promise. But Israel didn't want to do it. And so then the problem went on right up to the time of David. Now, uh, one of the things that I found, and I, I want to go back now and then put up some of the historical ideas about the passage I'm, I'm studying in First Peter. All of the commentators that are extant, Jewish and otherwise, in the first a couple hundred years B.C. and then during the time of Christ, they all understood Genesis 6 to be literal. And there was like, the, just like even the pagans said there was a Noahic flood, the best way to explain it, why do the Babylonians and everybody else have a flood narrative? Some of the liberals say, well, the Bible borrowed theirs from the Babylonians. But if you read both, which I've done, the Bible's obviously superior. My answer is there was a flood. And it was in the corporate memory of all these people because people lived a long time back then. And they could talk to each other about this. Can you imagine somebody lives 100, 200, I mean 200, 300, 400, 500 years? You could live literally, if that were true today, but it's not. God limited the life to 120 years according to Genesis. But you could go and ask somebody, well, when you uh, heard Abe Lincoln speak, what was that like? And you wouldn't even be going back that far. <laughs> okay, so there's people on the earth that were there uh, to talk to Noah's descendants, direct descendants. Now, I'm going to quote from Josephus. Okay, he's a Jewish historian, and this is Josephus Antiquities 1.73. That's all they tell you about these things. Okay, here's what Josephus says. Now this posterity of Seth continued to esteem the Lord as God as the Lord of the universe and to have an entire regard to virtue for seven generations. But in the process of time they were perverted and forsook the practices of their forefathers neither and did neither pay those honors to God which were appointed them, nor had they any concern to do justice toward men. Josephus. But for what degree of zeal they had formerly shown for virtue, they now showed by their actions a double degree of wickedness, whereby they made God to be their enemy. Uh, 73. For many angels of God, says Josephus, accompanied with women and begat sons, that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. But no one was very uneasy at what he did and being displeased at their contact, conduct persuaded them to change their dispositions. But seeing they did not yield to them, were slaves to pleasures, so on and so forth. That, that was Josephus' take on it. There's another six or seven Jewish sources, all of which come to the same conclusion. And it's the same conclusion that's come to by Jude and by Peter. And it's the conclusion based on a literal reading of Genesis 6. But it's not the only story. Let me get to... Let me go back now. Now, I'm saying spirits in prison aren't humans. What evidence do we have for that? The term spirits in the plural in the New Testament, only one time do we know it refers to humans, and that's in Hebrews where it talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. There, the context makes it clear it's men. 
Here, I believe, the context tells us this was probably those angels. And then at the end of this little section, it talks about principalities and powers. Now, I don't have this on a slide, but let me read to you from Thomas Schreiner's commentary. And Dr. Davis has pretty much the same list. Four proposals that are given for this verse that have been found in church history. David's finds five, but his, one of his is so heretical, most Christians wouldn't believe it. All right? Number one. One. First, Jewish tradition consistently understood Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in this way. Now, this would be the way I'm talking about, the literal way. Uh, one, Enoch. Enoch, by the way, is a pseudepigrapha. It means it has a false name of the author. Jude cites Enoch, but it's not really Enoch. It's some intertestamental Jewish writer. One Enoch, Jubilees, uh, I don't know, Reuben, Naphtali, Baruch, Josephus. I read that to you. These are just pseudepigrapha. But they understood it this way universally, all of these different Jewish sources, to be literal. That's the, that's, that's the first thing he has listed here, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's what Jude was talking about, but it doesn't fill in all the blanks. Second, we know from verses 14 through 15 that Jude was influenced by one Enoch, and one Enoch goes into great deal about the sin and punishment of these angels. Jude almost certainly would, have, would need to explain that he departed from the customary Jewish view of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, if he disagreed with Jewish tradition. The brevity of the verse supports the idea that he concurred with Jewish tradition. Third, the text forges a parallel between the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels. You know, that's not the list I was looking for, but it was a good one. (laughs) It's kind of what I already said. Excuse me while I'm confused here. Uh, well, maybe I'll go to David's and go to his list. Yeah, that was that. That was this. Here we go. There's my Greek. There's Shriner. Shriner. David's. Here it is. He has the five. Let me give the list of proposed understandings. Shriner was laying out the one that he thinks is correct. Number one, in, under David's New International Commentary New Testament, the spirits are the soul's of the faithful of the Old Testament, and the prison is simply a place they remain waiting Christ who proclaimed his redemption to them. That came up last week. It may very well be, I, it's not how I read it, but I suppose you could say that it's true that Christ went to get the righteous out of Hades, the good side of Hades, or Sheol, but I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. It, must, it could be taught somewhere else, but I don't personally. I don't think it's taught right here. And, there, and I've given some many good reasons for it. Not the w- w- least of which is Jude and Second Peter two understand it differently, and Peter should be used to interpret Peter. But that's one interpretation. Number two says David: the spirits are the souls of those who died in Noah's flood who are kept in Hades, and who hear the gospel proclaimed by Christ after his death and before his resurrection. So this would be, for those, of course, a second chance, and we don't believe in that, do we? The point on demand wants to die after that judgment. Number three, the spirits are the fallen angels of Genesis 6, 1 through however far that goes, and the prison is where they are kept bound and hear the proclamation of judgment by Christ. Number four, the spirits are the demons, the offspring of the fallen angels of Genesis 6, who have taken refuge or been protected in the earth. And the proclamation is that of Christ's post-resurrection invasion of their refuge. Or five, the spirits are fallen angels, but the preacher is Enoch, who proclaimed judgment to them. Well, we're not going to say that. Christ is the one who preached, not Enoch. 
All right. Um, Davis goes through a bunch of discussion of all these possibilities and comes to this conclusion, the same one Schreiner does. Thus, it seems likely that this passage in 1 Peter refers to a proclamation of judgment by the resurrected Christ to the imprisoned spirits, that is, the fallen angels, sealing their doom as he triumphed over sin, death, and hell, redeeming human beings. That, I believe, is correct. It's the view that I hold and I defend, and I think there's lots of good evidence for it. Hold on. Easy for you to say. <laughs> All right. No, I was reading it. I can repeat it. This was Doc David's, and really Schreiner has the same. I just didn't find the right page for that. Thus, it seems likely, says this Dr. David's, that this passage in 1 Peter, right here, refers to a proclamation of judgment, that would be the preached, by the resurrected Christ, there's the preacher, to the imprisoned spirits, there's the audience, the fallen angels, sealing their doom as he triumphed over sin and death and hell, redeeming human beings. Now, this isn't all the fallen angels. It's not all the wicked spirits. It's not all the demons. It's the one from Noah, ones from Noah's day that were locked up at the time of Peter. They, they still are today. But they're reserved for judgment. This is God's mercy not to allow anything like this to go on on the earth. It's God's kindness and preservation and love. In fact, it goes even further than this. God has ordained that humans and, and uh, their, their geopolitical boundaries are drawn by God, but we're ruled over by fallen men. And we aren't directly ruled by any kind of spirits. And it says in Ephesians that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies above the authorities and powers. And then we see that also here in Peter. That's bad who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Do you see that? All right, so it's after the resurrection. Now, concerning Jesus' descent into hell, if it did happen, it's contained in at least a later version of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended into hell. I don't know where it says that in the Bible. It definitely does not in Peter, in my opinion. Okay, I'm not the Pope or anything, and I'm not infallible. <laughs> I can't have an opinion. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. In fact, there's not any, I don't see any evidence that he is. Okay, and so is there any other evidence? Well, Jesus said, as was brought up last week, he he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I think to interpret that, we should look at what paradise meant in the context. And I would, uh, there's another one that I ran across. Think about this, and you can decide if it has any bearing on this. But when Jesus was dying on the cross, one of the things he said was, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So did the spirit of Jesus go into the hands of the Father as he prayed it would happen? Or was that prayer not answered and he rather went into Hades? Think about it. I think he went to be with the Father. Now, I'm going to recommend a book and then warn about a book. I mentioned last week that the Word of Faith people make a huge thing about Jesus going into hell. In fact, as a mortal man, not as God. Now, here's a great book. It's called A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell. In the 80s, this book the Lord used to refute the word of faith movement. And he was an insider. He was working on a Ph.D. at Oral Roberts University when he wrote this book. And he has a whole chapter 
on what he calls the doctrine of identification. One of the things you hear if you watch the faith teachers on TV is that man is a spirit. Okay? They make a big deal about it saying, Peter, man is a spirit. Now, the Bible, does the, what does the Bible say? God is a spirit. But they say man is a spirit who has a body. And so they want to emphasize the spiritual aspect of man as opposed to the physical, because they think the physical is somewhat illusionary. So if, you, if the spirit prevails because of your faith, the physical body won't get sick. That's sort of what we would call mind over matter. Now, there's a whole chapter on this doctrine of identification in McConnell's book. Now, I did all of that research myself. I had shelves of heresy books, and when we moved my books from the office into the, our little family room, I had to leave half of them behind, so I left the heresy. <laughs> and so I lost my heresy library, but I got my truth. I only took a handful of heresy books. Now, this also is somewhat held by Keswick Holiness. In order to confirm that, I got a, this is one book that's, that got over to my house that influenced me when I was being enticed by the Word of Faith movement. It's, it's Watchman Nee, Word of Faith. Now, Watchman Nee, Oswald Chambers, and anyone associated with Keswick Holiness teaches some version of perfectionism. And it may be called total surrender or passivity or lack of self-interest. They had different ways they taught this. I found the section in my old book that I used to carry around where he claims Jesus became spiritually dead when he died on the cross. Now, let me read that to you and then tell you some of the implications. Watchman Nee, The Spiritual Man, Volume 1. He cried out. Okay, by the way, let me read something else. Talk about man. His spirit, too, suffered immensely. His spirit is that part of man which equips him to commune with God. That was a big deal for Watchman Nee. He broke people in the spirit, soul, and body, and the spirit was perfected because that's where the divine nature is. And then the reason we're not perfected is because the body still has ideas. And sanctification became anatomical. Now he talks about Jesus. Watch my knee here. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. His spirit, says knee, was split asunder from God. The faith teachers say that. They say that Jesus took on the nature of Satan. And he became no different than any other man in order to descend into hell and, and wrestle with Satan to gain back planet Earth. Reading Nee, how intensely he felt the loneliness, the desertion, the separation. Sin affects most deeply the spirit, says Nee. Consequently, holy as the Son of God was, he still had to be wrenched away from the Father because he bore the sin of others. Jesus suffered this spiritual separation for us in order that our spirit could return to God. Now, according to Nee, there's the key to everything. The spirit of man is divine. It's, it comes from God. And when the spirit of man is one with the spirit of God, they get a passage for that out of 1 Corinthians. Then you have the divine nature in man, and the problem is the soul and the body. Now, the soul is the arbiter between the body and the spirit. The spirit is perfected. The spirit is like God. The soul would be our mind, will, and emotions, according to me, and we can decide which way it's going to go. But in this idea of the spiritual death of Jesus is attached by E.W. Kenyon, that book is still published, and I don't want to spend eight bucks for more heresy. But E.W. Kenyon's book, which was written in 1930, that says what happened, describes Jesus' descent into hell in great detail. 
Kenyon. Kenyon is the founder of the Word of Faith movement. Not Kenneth Hagin, not Kenneth Copeland, not Joyce Myers, not any of these people, not Joel Osteen, whose dad was heavily into it. E.W. Kenyon. He was teaching all of these things years before Kenneth Hagin ever taught any of them. And when I first listened to Kate Hagin as a freshman in Bible college, he used to say straight forth that he got his material from E.W. Kenyon. Later, he claimed it came by vision from God himself. That's what got me out of it, because I thought it was bogus. So Jesus separated from the Spirit becomes an ordinary man. Now, what's wrong with this? Let's put our theologian hats on. This means Jesus really wasn't divine. The born-again Jesus of this word of faith heresy cannot be divine because it fails on a definitional level. Divinity is eternal, non-contingent existence. Non-contingent means the deity of God is not dependent on anything outside of himself. There's nothing greater than God. There's nothing beyond God. From all eternity past, God, the Trinity, exists from all eternity. And all members, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, share this eternal deity. They're not dependent on anything outside of themselves. If Jesus was separated from that essential being of deity, that is proof that his deity was contingent, and that is proof he never was God. So therefore, me and the word of faith heretics that teach the same are denying the deity of Christ. Even if it's only for three days. To the contingency, Brian, Nancy right over here. <laughs> Did I scare you away from it? Uh, yeah, Nancy and Nancy. Um, say, Bob, the in prison, so the definition of in prison would be what? Because then watch me. This would be the. Uh, and called, chambers. Yeah, they, look at are this. Are they equating that to hell then? That would be where the spirits that sinned in Genesis 6 have been locked up. And they'll stay there until the final judgment. It's called here. Oh, that's Jude. Hell is not in the Greek there. Tartaros. Tartaros is the word for this dungeon. All right? Okay, uh, back to Rel. Um, I just want to clar- clarify and make sure I understand what you believe. So this, um, the souls that are in prison, they're the, were they the good angels? No. That fell, or they? Well, they were good in whatever state they were in before. They were the wicked ones in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Yeah, well, all, all wicked angels fell from somewhere at some time. But these are the ones specifically marked out. These ones that follow This is the, according to the text of Jude, Peter, and Peter, these are the ones that sinned with women in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They're locked up. Were they already fallen before they interacted well, with I assume, women? Uh, you know, that was their act of the fall, or they were fallen before. Or were they still the good angels that crossed the boundary? Well they're, well, they're no longer good, whatever they were. Okay? But they are locked up. Now, the question, why would they be locked up? Because God doesn't want this to happen again. Right. That's what it's his, it would be like, why do we lock up a murderer? So he won't do it again. Okay. You might lock up a murderer. Now, in the case of a human, if they're alive, they can repent. So you might lock up a murderer and throw a Bible into the cell and say, maybe you better read this and repent because 
you're not going to do anything on this earth. You're locked up, but at least you can still escape in eternity. And then over... Yeah, I, I think when it comes to our doctrine of angelology and demonology, we have to think of angels. There was angels that God had created, and then you had some that fell, and then they are, are what we'd call demons. And then out of that demon bunch, you had some that left their spiritual domain and they went after women. And it's those in particular then that are what Bob was pointing up. out that are locked up in prison. And then what happens in um, Revelation 9 is we'll make the case that they're let out. Yeah. Because remember, humanity always wants to get into contact with them. And you and I won't be there. We're going to be out of the picture in heaven, I believe, pre-trib rapture. But they'll long for contact. And one passage I just wanted to read to everyone. Um, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 14. Here is the fall of the king of Babylon. But remember who stands behind Babylon is really Satan. And so there's language that's used of the king of Babylon that's, I, Satan, yeah. yeah, it really applies to Satan because Satan is ultimately animating Babylon, the king of Babylon. This is uh, 1412. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. So here, like Bob had pointed out, he wants to be the lawgiver. That's the most powerful position in the cosmos. He wants to be above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Now I'll just stop there. The far reaches of the north, the term in Hebrew is Zaphon. And that's really what Mount Hermon is regarded as. Mount Hermon is Zaphon. Well, in First Enoch that Bob was pointing out, again, we're not saying it's canonical or it's scripture, but it does record sometimes true, accurate, historical things. Enoch records that these Nephilim descended to Mount Hermon. Now, where is Jesus transfigured? We believe that it probably happened on Mount Hermon. And so, in a sense, God is saying, no. Uh, remember, Mount Zion throughout the book of Isaiah, Zaphon will be thrown down. Mount Hermon, the reaches of the north where Baal is and all of his consort, the demonic realm will be thrown down. But what's lifted high in the millennial age? Mount Zion. Mount Zion, Mount Zion right? Yeah, so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is transfigured on the very ground that these Nephilim came down, and it's, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, and he takes over, so to speak. So all of that imagery then is locked into the transfiguration, too, I believe. So Yeah, anyway. Celeste has something, and we need to, yep. I'm running a little long, but I got started late, too, here. I can't see. Just going back to um, the, the Word of Faith movement or whoever, yeah. you know, says that Jesus lost his divinity for a certain time, yeah. Then I, I don't know logic very well, so I'm just trying to make some connection here. Then really what they're saying is that they don't have a savior because that person really then is a human being, not... He was for those three days. Their idea of salvation is that, say, that when Jesus went into hell, he, Jesus and Satan were on equal ground. Jesus had no particular... Uh, reason that he was uh, more p- different than Satan because he had the nature of Satan. And Jesus won the fight. I've heard them preach this, and then they make a big deal. He came out of there. But Jesus won the fight. But the very notion that Jesus took on the nature of Satan is blasphemous. And I think when it says... Today, you know, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He's talking about God and then Jesus went to heaven. That's the best information we have in the Bible is that from the cross to the resurrection, Jesus goes to be in heaven with the thief on the cross and all others who are redeemed. You know, Elijah was caught up into heaven. And uh, I just think that's the biblical understanding. And... uh, I understand that this is causes a certain amount of consternation, but I will say this in conclusion. Be aware, those who mess around with this and start speculating what's not revealed in Scripture, like E.W. Kenyon, end up in a lot of trouble. We're very safe just believing Peter's interpretation of what happened. That's uh, when the Bible interprets the Bible as the best source. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. We know this is very difficult, but our hearts are drawn to the, your truth and to the, your gospel. 
And we have to confess that, but by your grace, there we go. And we're not in any way superior, but we're redeemed by your precious blood. And we pray that we would go preach the gospel to all people in Jesus' name. Amen.